Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman on the tail end of a hurricane in the city, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes, like tonight, we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes have covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or had some history here in the city, about half of them, believe it or not. The history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in the city, which uh, now we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in the United States. African-American history in New York, going back to the time of the Dutch. We've covered the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles, the history of punk and opera in the city. They were separate episodes, by the way. Our public library systems, we have three. Leave it to New York. We don't have one nor two, but we have three public library systems. We've covered some of our greatest train stations and even some of our bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we are having one of those special episodes, and we're journeying underground, and sometimes overground, to the subway. The subway in New York. Uh, where do we start with it? It's something that many New Yorkers have, I wouldn't say a love-hate relationship with, but a utilitarian hate relationship with. It helps us get where we want to go, frequently, quickly, but not always. Sometimes, depending on the dime of time of day, it also can be fun to take. But frequently, people don't like taking it, but people do. Before COVID, daily ridership was almost 6 million, which actually is a greater number of people than live in any city in the United States, aside from New York itself. By the way, New York City, uh, we have 8.6 million people living in the five boroughs, and we have around 19 million people living in the metro area. For some of us, especially growing up like yours truly, the subway was a door to new horizons of newfound freedoms, being able to get anywhere in the city as a teenager for a reasonable fare, and also in good timing. Even today, for $2.75, you can travel from the top of the Bronx to Coney Island, or from Rockaway to the top of Manhattan, and on both of those trips, you can do it on a single subway line. And unlike other systems, the fare is the same. When I lived in London as a student in the early 80s, it was shocking to find out that I had to pay as far as I went. And I couldn't just go uh, uh, and go anywhere. Uh, sometime maybe I'll tell a story about how I took advantage of the system <laughs> when I was living there and got uh, further than I was entitled to get on my fare. Um, the subway is such an integral part of life in our city. Uh, tonight, we're going to focus on two things about the subway, not its present experiences for the most part, although a little, we're going to talk about the subway's history and also its art. Our first guest is Justin Rivers. Justin is the chief experience officer and lead tour guide for Untapped New York. Justin started his career as a New York City middle school English and language arts teacher on the Lower East Side. He dragged his students to historic sites across the city in an effort to bring the city's lesser-known stories to life. 
He became co-creator of The Wonder City, a graphic novel that reimagines New York City's entire history. He was also the playwright and producer of The Eternal Space, an off-Broadway play that centered on the demolition of New York City's Pennsylvania station. It was with this production and one simple tweet that he fell head over heels for Untapped New York, whom he partnered with for his Remnants of Penn Station tour, which I have yet to do, but I've been promised (laughs) a tour of Penn Station. How many times have I said that, Justin? When can can I come along? (laughs) (laughs) Along with his role as chief experience officer, Justin is the founding director of the Character Connection Initiative. It's a nonprofit organization that connects character education and mindfulness to middle school curricula. He's also creator and lead tour guide for some of Untapped New York's popular tours, including the underground tour of the subway. Funny we're talking about that tonight. The remnants of Dutch New Amsterdam, the secrets of the Brooklyn Bridge, the remnants of the world's fair and flushing meadow, the secrets of Coney Island, maritime history of New York, the hidden gems of Rafael Guastavino tour and the art in the New York City subway tour of which our second guest will be talking more at length. Justin, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Uh, hearty hello, Jeff. Good to be here. <clears throat> You're originally from the metro area, aren't you? I am, yes. I, I always say I grew up in the shadow of New York, about uh, 25 miles outside in northern New Jersey, and uh, came to Fordham University as an 18-year-old to start college and never came back. So mm. I am now officially, at 41 years old, I've lived more years in New York than I have in New Jersey. <laughs> um, um, so I grew up in Brooklyn, but eventually I will have clocked more years in Manhattan than Brooklyn, uh, although I don't know when that's going to be. It's going to be a while. <laughs> um, so Justin, it was being a teacher on the Lower East Side of all places that got you hooked into sharing what's special about New York and its history with other people. Yeah, I had uh, a bunch of uh, sixth, seventh and eighth graders, which is anywhere from 12 to 14. And uh, they hated history and social studies. They thought it was boring. And I said, you guys live in the most history dense area of the United States here on the Lower East Side, Lower Manhattan. So I dragged them out to the streets and uh, showed them living history. And they they loved it after that. So I was like, yeah, there might be something to this. (laughs) I might have a formula here. (laughs) I don't think I ever asked you, how, how long were you a teacher for? I was an in-classroom teacher teaching English language arts and social studies, which is history, for uh, six years on the Lower East Side. Then I transitioned into being a uh, teacher that would go into different classrooms all over the Bronx and Manhattan, uh, teaching social-emotional learning for another seven years, and then transitioned out to Untapped and what I do now. Mm. So 14 years almost. Wow. Um is there anything you miss about teaching in the classroom that you don't get to experience when you share the city's amazing history and its amazing places with people on a professional basis? Yeah. And I mean, it's, this is going to sound extremely schmaltzy, but it's very true. If you're an educator, I would say for the right reasons is I really do miss getting kids excited about things because it's, uh, it's great when you're on a tour and adults, adults, pay to come on the tour and they want to listen to you, but kids don't want to listen to you. And if you make them listen to you, you know, you've done something right. Uh, so it's always clicking with kids that way. I, I miss that on a, almost a daily basis. So, mm. But now as you and our second guest, Phil Desier do, you uh, actually do that, but on a different, on a, on a different level. Totally. Um, which I love. And speaking of level, that takes us to the subway, the, new, the beloved New York City subway, <laughs> especially in the summertime. Uh, well, thank goodness now uh, it's mostly air conditioned. Uh, the air conditioning kept breaking down when I was growing up during this. Well, I, when I started taking the subway in the 70s. Um, would you say that we had a, a precursor to the New York City subway in terms of, of, of rail transit? 
I would like, you know, New York always sort of hangs its head in shame because it was very late to the subway game um, in the 20th century, early 20th century. But uh, London had an underground before we did and Budapest had an underground and Paris and even Boston and Chicago had something before we did. But uh, we had really great stories before that, which is what New York uh, is good for. So I believe on one of our previous podcasts, I talked about the Atlantic Avenue Tunnel when we did Cobble Hill. Uh, there's a tunnel, the first subterranean train tunnel was New York, 1844. It runs under Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. Um, it was discovered in the 1980s again after being sealed off. And uh, by Bob Diamond, who was a guy who was bringing people down there till 2009. It was one of the most unique New York tours. Um, that was part of the Brooklyn uh, Jamaica Railroad, which would become the LIRR. So that was number one. But the, I think the greatest uh, pre-subway subway story takes place in Lower Manhattan. There was a subway that ran for a block under Broadway between Murray and Warren Streets, and it was done by pneumatics. Uh, and a guy named Alfred Eli Beach, who was the 18-year-old publisher, Scientific American, the magazine still on the stands today. He was 18 uh, years old? He was 18 years old when he took over. He didn't start the magazine. Uh, another scientist did. But about a year into it, that guy said, I hate publishing. I don't want to do this. And he turned it over to Alfred Eli Beach, who was a smarty pants. He was from New England, but he comes to New York. He's patent officer, scientist, tinkerer. And he gives himself a patent for pneumatics. So that idea of air pressure to move things through tubes like mail, uh, inter-office mail in the good old days, those bank tellers if you drive up. And um, what he does is, is he designs a system, a, a subway underground system that runs on pneumatics. Now, the problem was he wanted funding from the city to do it large scale. At the time, the city was run by a very corrupt political machine known as Tammany Hall, William Boss Tweed, the fat cat of corruption. Uh, at the time, uh, Tweed owns the uh, patent. So he goes, oh yeah, watch me, I'm gonna do it anyway. So in guerrilla style, he rents the ground level and basement of Devlin's, which is a was a man's department store in 258 Broadway. He gets about 40 guys under there and for a couple of months, they're digging a tunnel under Broadway from Murray to Warren. It's literally a block long. Puts this very ornate station down in the basement, builds this great subway car that has velvet cushions and couches inside of it. And there's goldfish uh, in these ornate sort of pond-like uh, structures in the station and mosaics. And uh, he charges 25 cents back in 1870. He charges 25 cents. That's not inflation. It's a lot of money back then. 400,000 people take this one little subway it's about 20 seconds back and forth. A big fan pushes it to Murray Street and then sucks it back from Murray Street. And not to be outdone, uh, Alfred Eli Beach had a guy at Murray Street with a top hat on and a bell so that when the subway arrived, when the car arrived, he'd ring a bell and go Murray Street. Like there was anywhere else they could go in the city. It was one <laughs> stop and they could see the other side from where they were. Um, and it was great. Because everybody loved it. He made a lot of money off of it. And Boss Tweed's thrown in jail because of corruption for the Tweed Courthouse, which we have today. And uh, the city goes for it. But there's a great financial panic. He loses all of his investors, never gets built. And the tunnel was under Broadway until the BMT comes in 1912 to prospect for where the R&W line is now. He used it as a shooting range and a champagne cellar uh, after the subway. Really interesting story. It's it's quite New York. <laughs> Are there any um, uh, remnants left of uh, aside from the like the tunnel? Any any art remnants left? So from the that? tunnel was assumed into the RW line. Um, 
the uh, somebody on the co-op board of the building saw me giving a tour outside of the building and said, we want to get into the basement, but TD Bank owns it. So we don't know if there's anything down there. Only physical remnant was a shield that he ordered from England to hold Broadway up as he was tunneling. That shield is in Cornell, apparently. Oh. University. Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> after the pneumatic subway <clears throat> sort of, you know, uh, proverbially caved in, uh, we also had rapid transit by rail before the subway was built. We had L trains, elevated lines, and there were four of them, weren't there? Yeah, there were. And what happens is when the new, when the new underground subterranean system comes to pass in the early 1900s, they're all assumed by the Interborough Rapid Transit, but there were individual owners starting from the uh, early 1870s up until the early 1900s. And they ran up all the major avenues. Um, Since we had, since we had four elevated subway lines, why did, what was the reason that we needed or that, that, that the company that, that built the first subway thought that it would actually be a good idea and people would, would want to patronize it since we already had four, four different lines. Because weather, when uh, we had a big blizzard known as the blizzard of 1888, dumped almost 40 inches of snow very unexpectedly in March on New York, and those lines ceased to function for weeks, and nobody could move around. And so everybody said, enough, it's time for Mm -hmm. rapid transit uh, underground in New York. Other cities have it. We need it. Mm. What was the first subway line? When, when, When was it built? Who built it? Uh, so it was after 1888, by 1889, the city put together the Rapid Transit Commission. The Rapid Transit Commission's job was not to build the subway. It was to hire the private businesses that would build the subway, the investors who would run their own companies. And the first one, uh, they pegged a guy named August Belmont Jr., who was building St. John the Divine up in Morningside Heights at that time. And he starts something called the Interborough Rapid Transit Company. Um, which I always refer to as the IRT all the time, which are all the number trains, one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven today. Well, my generation still thinks of it as the IRT. <laughs> yeah, no, a lot of people still will call the IRT BMTIND. And those, what people don't realize are, especially new New Yorkers or modern New Yorkers, all of our subways were proprietary, private-owned businesses up until 1940. Uh, so that's why they're built the way they are. That's why the cars are different sizes. Uh, IRT trains are narrower than BMT and IND trains. Um, which well, the gauge like, of the track is the same. It's just the, the gauge the, of the track is exactly the same. IRT trains can run on any track in the system. BMT and INDs literally can't fit in the tunnels of the IRT. They're too wide. Hmm. But the, the track gauges are the same. So 1904, we get our first subway open. Uh We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Justin Rivers of Untap New York uh, in this first segment about the subways on the history of the subway. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Run or are ready to open your own business? 
Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York and our special episode about the beloved subway, the beloved New York City subway. My first guest is Justin Rivers. Justin is the chief experience officer and lead tour guide for Untapped New York. Justin, speaking of Untapped New York, obviously during COVID, um, activities for getting people together in groups and touring around is limited. But um, when we can go back to not having to physically distance again, what are some of the more interesting tours that Untapped New York hosts? So actually, we, when we went into phase four in New York City, we have now uh, launched a set of socially distant uh, tours in person, which oh, are going to start at the end of August. Yeah, we're really excited. So we are launching a, uh, we're working with the Gowanus Dredgers, who are uh, canoeing the Gowanus Canal at sunset. Uh, Sounds like is- a baseball club, the Gowanus Dredgers. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Um, and it's been a super big hit with our uh, with our fan base. Uh, we're selling those out pretty quickly, but people are anxious to get out. But that's a really cool tour. We're also starting a Victorian Flatbush tour, uh, which is all new on the roster, and that's going to be in person. And so what we're saying is no more than 10 people listening devices so people can spread out and everybody's wearing masks so that we're safe. But we're getting we're getting back out there at the end of August and into September uh, as safely as we can. Um, oh, great. Yeah. And how can our listeners find out about your offerings at Untapped New York? Uh, untappedcities.com. We haven't changed the website from Untapped Cities to Untapped New York yet. So untappedcities.com slash tours, or just go to the homepage and hit tours. Great. Moving back to the subway, the beloved subway, I like to, to call it. What, what was the first subway line? Where did it start? Where did it end? Where did it go? Uh, very interesting. Um, I love this story because I on the tour, I bring the first subway map from 1904. And the subway starts at City Hall, uh, at, under City Hall Park today. And it goes under what we would, New Yorkers would know as the 456 line up to Grand Central. And at Grand Central, it used to take a turn over to the west side on what we New Yorkers today know as the shuttle line, the S, to Times Square. And then it jogs west up to 145th Street in Harlem on what we would know as the 123 line. And when it opened, it was the first in the world to have express and local service from the very day it opened uh, in 1904. 
So those four track system that you know from the four, five, and six, and all the way up to the one, two, three, that's mm -hmm. all original. And two other firsts, and of course, it would be in a place like New York. Uh, it was the first subway system in the world that banned smoking in the system. Uh, yes. And that also operated 24 hours in all of its stations. Correct. And as a matter of fact, we are in a historic period right now because our subway is not 24 hours. And this is the first time at this large clip of time that it has not been because it's being cleaned from 1 to mm -hmm. 5 a.m. Well, I remember when uh, Sandy hit, uh, the subway was uh, shut yeah. for a number of days. And that also happened after September 11th, too. Correct. Um, the original IRT line, the stations were smaller, weren't they? And they had smaller trains. Yes. Uh, oh, go. No, yeah. So yeah, uh, no, they, uh, a lot of people don't realize I like to call the uh, original IRT stations like little time capsules because Heinz and Lafarge were the two Beaux-Arts architects who Belmont brought on. Remember, they're designing St. John the Divine and they design these little 200 foot stations that have all of these Beaux-Arts elements, these gorgeous faiences from the Gruby company. And all of these architectural moldings, Heinz and Lafarge made, wanted to make sure that light, daylight came down into these stations because they're right under street grade. Uh, so they made them very artful and very pleasant, but they made them very small uh, for original five car train sets. Now, again, in context of what we're used to today in New York, we're used to anywhere from 10 to 12 trains in a train that pulls up. Now imagine halving that, imagine the cars being smaller, and imagine hundreds of thousands of people wanting to ride these cars, because from the first day of transit, you had hundreds of thousands of people wanting to ride the subway. Uh, and within months, the Interborough Rapid Transit was known as the Interborough Rattled Transit, because they couldn't accommodate all the people who wanted to be on it, because the cars and the stations were too small. So having a packed subway car at rush hour is not something that's new to modern times. It happened uh, day one from <laughs> day one. That was the way it was. <laughs> so when did they uh, enlarge the trains, extend the stations? When did that happen? So uh, they started the initiative from the mid 1940s and they kept going all the way up till the, the early 1960s. They literally had to bulldoze in front of them. They had to move uh, gas lines and, and all these sort of utilities to extend the stations for larger train sets to accommodate these people. So what they did was they started on the downtown sides first. So when the downtown sides uh, were elongated, that was most likely in the 1940s. The uptown sides were extended later on in the 50s and the 60s. I always tell people, if you want to see the best example of the difference between a Heinz and Lafarge Beaux-Arts 1904 and something else from the mid-century sort of avocado green like your grandmother's fridge, uh, go to Spring Street on the Uptown 6, get out, mm -hmm. and there's literally a line in the wall in the middle of the station. And one side is 1958. I don't know what the exact date is, but it's around that time. And then the other side is 1904, and it's literally like jumping in time. Um, Speaking of a Beaux-Arts station, there is one that is still there in all of its glory, and a lot of people know about it, but most people haven't seen it, and that's the City Hall subway line. Um, why don't we have that anymore? Why why do we not have a City Hall subway station on that line? So it's I mean, it's it's now called City Hall and Chamber Street, but but the actual original station. So uh, it is, it's, you know, it's considered the crown jewel. It was station number one. It was the ceremonial launching station. It was what made it unique was it was completely designed by Rafael Guazdavino and his uh, team put together 14 support arches because it was built on a turn. It was built on a turnaround loop. 
Uh, absolutely stunning. Daylight came down through leaded glass at three portals. The problem was with it, it was very small. It was only built for those five-car train sets. And when they extended the trains, five cars wouldn't even platform. They'd be in the tunnel. Secondly, it was built on too sharp of a turn, so the trains came in on their sides, much like they do at Union Square today, um, without the extenders to compensate. And it only had one platform. It only went uptown. So by the 1940s, uh, they realized that most people were not using City Hall. They were just walking over uh, across the street to Brooklyn Bridge City Hall, which is still there today, which is serviced by uh, the 4, 5, and the 6, because they could go downtown and uptown. Um, nobody was getting out at City Hall just because it was a pretty station. So in 1945, they close it down to public consumption and the general public is no longer allowed in there. Well, that's not the only loop. We have another one on the old number one line down by uh, down by South Ferry, which uh, uh, was taken out of service when they extended the one train, but was put back several years after Sandy. Um, I always used to, I love taking that, those, those lines. Uh, it's too bad that you can't really, really, really see it anymore. Um, how long after the first subway line was built, did the IRT decide to expand the lines into Brooklyn and also building a West side line down below, below Times Square? It was almost immediate. I mean, they had the, in the plans from the time that they were building the first line. So I believe, uh, the train is going to hit, the Bronx by 1910, it's going to be in Brooklyn by 1908. So anywhere between about uh, three to 10 years did the IRT start spanning out uh, into Brooklyn and the Bronx. And, you know, a lot of people credit that um, the Bronx, uh, the, the trains in the Bronx made some of the neighborhoods in the Bronx. Once the train started going out there, the neighborhood started following. Like the present four line did in, in the Bronx, and uh, and then the Grand Concourse. Uh, so many properties in the Grand Concourse went up. Yeah, um, and then at some point, a second subway company decided to build a line. What was that? So this is an interesting. Or build a system, not just a line, but build right. But build a. Um, this is an interesting story because again, we're all, we're so used to the state and the city running our transportation, but back in the day, it was private enterprise, and what did private enterprise thrive on? Competition. And the city wanted to fuel the competition. So they looked to Brooklyn because Brooklyn was its own city uh, until the uh, unification of the greater five boroughs. And uh, Brooklyn had the Brooklyn Rapid Transit Company, which was basically getting people uh, down to Coney Island and all around Brooklyn. And Manhattan said, would you start trunk lines underground in Manhattan uh, because we need the help? We have to alleviate the ridership pressure from the IRT. Uh, and so they form a company called the Brooklyn Manhattan Transit Company, which uh, most people refer to as the BMT. Uh, and the BMT today are lines, uh, the N, the Q, the R, the W, the J, and the Z. Uh, and they open up in 1915. Uh, so uh, you have about 11 years after the IRT comes to pass that the BMT now is starting to run competition. If you notice in lower Manhattan, BMT lines run right astride IRT lines. And that was on purpose. It was business. You come to us. That's why the BMT's got the bigger cars. They hold more people. They're wider. Give us more money. It's capitalism. And that uh, station down uh, under the municipal building, that had to be quite a marvel when it was built. I think there are um, uh, there are not only four four tracks, but there are there are four platforms. It's enormous. It's cavernous. That station. 
It is. It's one of the highest and widest. And uh, people don't go there because ridership stats on the Jay-Z Chamber Street are abysmally low because the Jay-Z doesn't go anywhere in Manhattan. Um, but it was called the Grand Central of downtown. It was uh, it was a terminal until 1930. So BMT trains stopped there. And then in 1930, they completed the Nassau Tunnel, which means trains now are going out to Brooklyn, looping through Fourth Avenue and able to come back. Um, and when it becomes a through station, they close three platforms down, um, leave them to abandonment, which they still are today. And um, yeah, it, it's no longer used. But they, when they first opened in the 19 teens, it was one of the marvels of the system. It was high. It was wide. Gorgeous pillars. Guastavino himself was again brought in to do the entrance. It's got one of the most beautiful entrances in the system. And again, nobody sees it. It's built into the municipal building. It's uh, it's a ratty station, but I love going down there. It's a really to, ratty station to transfer between the B. I say between the BMT and the IRT. People that's don't. exactly it. Well, that's yeah. why, and there's the IRT signage used to be there up until about six months ago. The old IRT that way over the bridge, mm. but they're putting in elevator banks and they've closed all that mm. stuff off. Unfortunately. Well, believe it or not, Justin, we're almost out of time. But uh, but I wanted to ask you about the origin of the third law, the third system, the IND. What? Yeah. How did that start? So the IND was uh, started in the late 1920s with the idea that the city was going to take over the system. So it was called the city-owned independent line, uh, and the city-owned independent line are the A, the C, the E, the B, the D, and the F that we know today. And that was again to provide service for areas that didn't get service from the BMT and the IRT. Um, and also, uh, they started digging deeper, deeper, deeper. So a lot of those stations are deeper and higher, the highest and the lowest are on that line. And by 1940, the, right after the IND starts getting going, uh, the city uses municipal bonds to buy up both the BMT and the IRT lines and put them under one umbrella. So the IRT and the BMT just sold their line. Did they eventually go bankrupt or what happened to those companies? Uh, the companies were struggling financially because the contracts that they had with the city were not very good for them. They weren't making the kind of profits that they needed to keep the system up. Uh, this is These are things that we still deal with today, as a matter of fact. Uh, one of the reasons why our line has service issues is because of those original contracts and because of the deals that they made. The city didn't even really give them a choice because they didn't want them anymore. Uh, so they used municipal bonds to buy them up. The main reason why they wanted to take down the elevateds because they wanted to get them off the avenues to make more room for the cars. And immediately hmm. they take down the elevateds in 1940, days after they signed the contracts. The only one they left up, Second Avenue, because Second Avenue didn't have any service. Took that one down in 54. So it stayed up for about 15, hmm. 14 years. Well, what that also did is it created, it took noise and darkness away right. from those streets. And right. Uh, right. that's why on Third Avenue, you, you, uh, all the tall buildings are new. No one wanted to build anything aside from the row house tenements that were there while the L trains were there. Right. Justin, this has been illuminating and fascinating, but we're out of time. Thank you for taking us on a journey back in time to the origins of our beloved subway. Our first guest on this show about the subway on Rediscovering New York has been Justin Rivers. Justin is the Chief Experience Officer and Lead Tour Guide of Untapped New York. You can find out about their offerings at www.untappedcities.com. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak with our second guest about art in the subway, its history, and what art is like now on the subway. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 
at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So that's seven o'clock every Thursday evening. The mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back and you're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 495 0317. Our show is about New York, its neighborhoods, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on those channels are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest. Even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone that you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest is also returning guest to Rediscovering New York, Phil Desier. Phil is a licensed tour guide by the Department of Consumer Affairs and a member of the Guides Association of New York City. He enjoys sharing his passion for the Big Apple with tourists and locals alike. 
Phil came to the tourist guiding profession following a 35-year career as a graphic designer and art director for publishing companies and in-house corporate graphics departments. His walking tours focus on the art and architecture, history and tales, and sometimes the quirky characters of the Big Apple. From the age of 10, Phil wanted to live in Greenwich Village. For 39 years, he has indeed lived, loved, laughed, and learned in this vibrant and colorful neighborhood. He loves the village because of its small town atmosphere, but big city style. With its irregular street plan, named streets, easy charm, and human scale, he finds the village comforting. And Phil Desier, a warm welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. You're not from New York originally. Where are you from? No, I'm not. I moved to New York City to Greenwich Village, where I've lived for the past 40 years, uh, from a farming uh, community in South Jersey, a, a town called Vineland. It's a three-hour car drive from the city. I still have relatives, uh, immediate family and extended family who live there. How did you get into graphic design, Phil? I always uh, had an interest in art of some sort. And uh, as a fine artist, uh, it's, a rough, uh, it's a rough way to make a living. But a graphic artist is, in, is more in demand. So my, uh, my uh, plans went in that direction rather than a fine artist. Hmm. And how did you find your way to, like Justin and his colleagues, to, to illuminating and presenting the great things about what you love in the city to people through, through your professional work? Uh, the last office job that I had, uh, the company uh, moved, and I did not want to move with it. And one night I was uh, scrolling through the iPad, and I came across a website about tour guiding, and uh, I stopped, and I said, I could do that. And I researched what I, what I had to do to do that, and I, I got licensed uh, by the city, and I began researching my tours and offering them through my own website, uh, Walkabout New York, my own company, as well as partner, partnering with other, uh, other tour operators and tour companies and in the city and across the country. How old is Walkabout New York? When did you start it? I began Walkabout New York on April 1st of 2016 when I sent out my email to um, uh, 2014, excuse me, 2014. When I sent out the email on uh, April Fool's Day, I got uh, return uh, emails asking if it was an April Fool's joke. Did your first tour have any kind of an April Fool's theme to it? Uh, my first <laughs> tour was uh, here in Greenwich Village, my own, uh, my home neighborhood. And uh, I have uh, since expanded to uh, tours uh, throughout the city, uh, downtown. Uh, one of my favorite tours is of uh, Rockefeller Center, the art and architecture of Rockefeller Center. As and you well. were a guest on our show about Rockefeller Center, which was a great episode. By the way, everyone is podcasted. You can hear it. It was paired with uh, the Woolworth Building. But Phil was our first guest on that show about Rock Center. Uh, and I also offer five different tours of the, of sub, of the subway, the subway art, uh, all following five different routes. And uh, each one has about 10 stops on it. And we talk about the art uh, at each of those 10 stops. 
If people wanted to find out more about your tours, which I'm assuming are going to be um, up and running again when we no longer have to physically distance the way we are, how can they find out about, about those offerings and go on your tours? They could go to the website. That is walkaboutnewyork.com. And the, all, all the tours are listed there in the upper menu. Uh, and I have to say, one of the, the nice things about your tours is a couple of times I've been walking the streets on a Saturday afternoon <laughs> and run into you with uh, with a crowd of people in tow. Not with well, me, with a crowd of people in your tow, not mine. Well, please uh, say hello, because I do like my guests to uh, know that I'm a, uh, I'm a real person, that I have friends, that I know people <laughs> in New York, and I'm not some talking head. So if, when, when you see me next, please stop by and just just say hello. Okay. I did actually, it was under the Washington Square Arch, I think. Oh, that, uh, sure. Yeah, I do remember that now that you talk yeah, about it. Yes. Yeah. Um, that brings us to to art in the subway, the beloved subway and beloved art in the subway. Phil, what's the genesis of art in the subway? The art has been in the subway since it began in 1904. Uh, the, um, one of the uh, philosophy um, prevalent in the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century was something called the city beautiful and its philosophy was if you make something beautiful if you make the surroundings beautiful beautiful buildings beautiful parks people will behave in a beautiful way and so that was carried underground to the subway and uh, even today you can see some of that early 20th century uh, Beaux-Arts uh, Art Nouveau uh, uh, art there in the city. Uh, I think everyone's favorite is at um, Astor Place. The beavers at Astor Place, the terracotta beavers, uh, they're, they're quite playful and amusing. Uh, another good reason for having those uh, symbols, those pictures, was keep in mind at the time, the early 20th century, many of the riders of the subway were immigrants. They did not speak English, it, or they were not literate. They could not read the sign that said Astor Place. So they might have been told, get off where you see the beaver, or get off where you see the, uh, see the ship at Columbus Circle. Uh, sometimes if they were literate, they were literate in another language, which didn't help them anyway to read an English printed sign. So these, uh, these symbols, these pictures, the art, from the early part of the subway system uh, served two, two purposes, identification as well as, um, as well as beauty, as well as looking pretty. August Belmont put together the Interborough Rapid Transit Company, the IRT. Um, did he actually take, number one, I want to ask you, was, was he, a, was he a, a proponent of art on the subway? And second, did he actually take part in decision-making about what kind of art went into the original subway? As a businessman and an investor, I believe that Mr. Beaumont's focus was making money. Uh, so I, I don't know if he actually had a direct hand in, in approving any of the art, but he certainly financed it. He certainly raised the money and spent it on uh, these stations looking beautiful. So in a roundabout way, he did. Hmm. Let's fast forward a little bit, Phil. When um, let's talk more about modern times. When um, does a subway 
get art now? When is it decided and by who? I'm, I'm sure it's the it's a New York City transit. Is there is there like an art department? Uh, and and when do they say, OK, you know, we 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 have to do an art upgrade for this for this station? When subway stations are renovated, they uh, will get art in that renovation process. In the early 1980s, a law was passed in the city uh, called the Percent Law, and that law dictates that 1% of a construction uh, budget must go toward art, and that includes the subway system. So uh, the other way of art getting into a subway system or, or a subway station is if it's newly constructed. And that would include the Second Avenue extension of the Q line, the uh, 23rd and Lex- uh, 63rd and Lexington, the uh, 72nd Street, uh, 86th Street, and the 96th Street stations are all new as of January 2017. And they all have fabulous art in them, as well as the extension of the um, the line that goes to Hudson Yards. That Hudson Yards station has fabulous art in it. Uh, that's the uh, the number seven line. Wow. Um, well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Phil Desir of Walkabout New York on art in our beloved subway system. We'll be back in a moment. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know. Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. And you're back to Rediscovering New York and this special episode about the New York City subway and this segment about art on the subways. Phil, there are so many artists in New York. I mean, we're a city of 8.6 million people. And I'm sure many, many artists would love to have their creations live in the subway, uh, maybe even long after they're no longer with us. 
What's the process for selecting artists to install art in the subway? Uh, earlier, before we went to break, you mentioned um, or you asked about an art department for the MTA, and indeed it does have an art department. It's called MTA Arts and Design, and it is staffed by trained artists, by people who are artists uh, in, in their own right. In fact, the woman who heads that department, a woman named um, uh, Susan uh, Bloodworth, uh, she um, designed unfortunately, a, um, a, a, a piece of art that can no longer be seen because it is in the old uh, South, uh, South Ferry Terminal that was replaced when the new South Ferry Terminal uh, began. And she did a modern take on uh, a, sailish, uh, a, a sailboat that uh, was in uh, the original terracotta panels of that South Ferry uh, terminus for the one, um, and uh, but it can't be seen anymore because she uh, because that uh, station is closed. But these artists will um, evaluate uh, artists, the artists who are part of uh, MTA Arts and Design. They will evaluate who is working, uh, what artists are active at any one time as they are planning. The renovation of a, a subway station and they will approach uh, these artists and say we have you in mind for making the art in a certain subway and they will offer that person the opportunity to submit an idea and they usually only approach four or five artists at a time and uh, because uh, of that limited uh, a number it's not an open competition, not hundreds of people uh, submit designs, but uh, these four or five people will submit a design and uh, only one will be approached. Sometimes in the case of uh, the artist who um, worked on the uh, J Street Metrotech uh, subway station uh, in Brooklyn, he was offered two different uh, stations in the Bronx that he refused but because he wanted one in Brooklyn, which is where he lives and works. Um, so well, Justin uh, would like to hear that because he lives in Brooklyn and not the Bronx. So someone's standing up for being counted in Brooklyn and didn't want to get, uh, uh, although I love the Bronx, I actually spend time there and um, uh, I work in the Bronx. I do work in the Bronx too. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, Phil, is um, what are the best materials for art in the subway? Did, did they... Are they mandated? Do artists get to choose them? Do they? Certainly, I'm thinking the durability has to be has to be considered. Like grime, air, what goes in the air to make sure that it could be cleaned and it could be it it could withstand the elements. And the most durable material is uh, ceramic, and that is why you see so many uh, both the original art in the subway. Uh, from uh, 1904 onward, uh, you can see ceramic mosaics. And uh, up to the day, up to today, those ceramic uh, mosaics are what are, is what most, is what most, is what is most durable. And uh, today you have uh, ceramic mosaics as well as um, porcelain tiles and also bronze. Um, and uh, durable metals. 
uh, stained glass in some of the elevated stations in the Bronx and in Brooklyn uh, are, are also used. So it's uh, a durable material, uh, terracotta, as in terracotta um, mosaics or glass mosaics, and uh, also a, a metal of some sort, bronze, mm. steel. We, so I don't know if everybody, well, Many people don't know this. I knew there were hundreds of subway stations. We have 472 subway stations in the system. How many of those have art fill? Roughly 50%. About half of them have been renovated or are new, and they have uh, art um, on display, This uh, what I like to call the art museum at the core of the Big Apple. Mm. Well, we have a few minutes left, and we're coming up to my favorite question for you in this segment. What are your favorite art installations in the subway? Which ones do you love? Which ones do you think are interesting? Which ones uh, do you especially want to have people notice when they're in particular stations? Well, my all-time favorite is located on the IND line, uh, the uh, ACE at 14th Street and... 8th Avenue, those wonderful bronze figurines that are scattered throughout the entire station, both on the platform levels and at the mezzanine level. And it is, um, they're so uplifting. And that is included on my subway art tour number one. And when I get there, I have some wonderful, funny and amusing stories to talk about the artist who is Tom Otterness. And uh, I do enjoy uh, that station when I go there. And it's just, it's great fun. Um, Those figurines are so amusing. I love the alligator coming out of the sewer. uh. (laughs) Yes, that that urban legend has become real in bronze. Uh, I like showing that off to to guests who take that tour. Uh, There are several others. Uh, I mentioned the... uh, Second Avenue subway line uh, at um, 72nd Street. Uh, The work called um, uh, Perfect Strangers by Vic Muniz. Uh, They're very playful. That uh, subway station also includes the only non-political representation of uh, two gay men, gay men holding hands. And uh, I always like to uh, point that out and uh, tell people, tell the guests on the tour that um, they are only one degree of separation from those two men because I do know them. Uh, so oh, it, wow. Yeah, uh, it's, a pretty, it, it's pretty wonderful. When they got the news that they were being included in that artwork, they felt like they had won the lottery <laughs> because they will be there for maybe Forever. another 100 years. Yeah. Well, yeah. Every New Yorker's dream to be immortalized you yes, know, on the wall of the subway. <laughs> How do I get that for me? I'm wondering. Maybe uh, if, uh... Well, I suppose if you're the likes of a certain president of the United States, you might try to buy that. But anyway, we won't go there tonight. Oh, all right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, in the minute or so we have, LaFilla, are there any other uh, art installations or pieces of art that you find really inspiring in the subway? Uh, there's one at um, Cortland Street the stop for the uh, 9-11 Memorial and Museum. Uh, That is, um, it's absolutely wonderful. 
uh, all of the tiles there. It has another wonderful story. All the tiles are handmade. They uh, include uh, images such as the bull and the bear uh, because that station is close to the financial district. And there are other images. There are actu there's actually an image of the World Trade Center as part of that installation because it was installed prior to 9-11, uh, the Twin Towers, mm -hmm. that is. So I, I really do like that station, too. Well, I wish we had more time to to hear more of some of the special parts of the subway that, that you love and take people around. I want to remind people that they can take Phil's tour of subway art at walkaboutnewyork.com. Is that right, walkaboutnewyork.com? That's right. Well, Phil Desir, thank you for being a guest on the show about, about the subway. Well, we've just finished this week's exploration into the subway of its history and its art. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siakas, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant for the show is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a curious person always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. 
I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 